Hey everyone, Tessa Stuckey here with For the Sake of Our Youth. I just want to take a quick second to thank you for listening and joining me on this journey. This is a really scary world that we live in and being a parent is without a doubt the hardest job in the world. I am a mom of four, I'm a therapist, and now I'm an author. I'm so excited to announce that my book, For the Sake of Our Youth, was recently published in April. You can find it on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. As a therapist, I get this amazing advantage to hear what's going on in today's world for our youth, and I just can't be quiet about it, to understand what's going on in today's culture and how it's affecting our kids' emotions. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's not looking good. I have always said that I could talk about this forever, so much so that I could write a book about it. So I wrote the book about it, but I'm not done talking. So here we go. Ooh, also, sorry. If you're liking what you're hearing, go ahead and subscribe so that you get updated whenever there's a new episode that comes out. Maybe even leave a review. That would help other parents find this podcast easier. I would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Also, if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can find me at the mom therapist. For more information, go to that's with an ey.com. Hey everyone. Okay, so today we have an awesome guest. We have author and speaker Jessica LaHaye. I followed her work for a long time and she has a wonderful parenting book called The Gift of Failure. And she really was one of my inspirations for working on my book. And her her book, The Gift of Failure, dives down deeper into just a little part that I have in my book. She has done years and years of research. She was a teacher for a long time. She's worked with youth all over, and she just has a lot of good information to share. Her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence, is coming out this next April, 2021. Most of this interview that we talk about today is about the gift of failure, but we definitely dive into the addiction book that she is going to be releasing soon. Also, she co-hosts an amazing podcast called Hashtag Am Writing. And if you want to be a writer someday or you are interested in writing a book, that I highly, highly suggest listening to that podcast. It's been really helpful for myself and I just, it, oh, I love it. So enjoy. <laughs> I'm so excited to do this because I've, followed your work and I just really admire you and oh, thank you um, so you are or you were a teacher are you still teaching so I was a teacher for 20 years I um and the last five of it I taught in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents um it was great because it was part-time and so I travel a lot for work because I do a lot of speaking so I was able to balance um I just never travel I tried to never travel on Fridays because that was my teaching day there um so it was super flexible and then about a year and a half ago and now I guess they decided to close the adolescent wing and make more room for 
adults. So now in um, the state of Vermont, anyway, if your kid needs inpatient treatment, there's no place to get it. So yeah, so that was really tough, especially since, you know, I'd been teaching there for five years, but there was one guy who had been teaching there for 15, over 15 years. So this was something that we all, you know, we were all really dedicated to these kids. We love teaching there. And it was really bummer when, when we were let go. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's heartbreaking. They took away the adolescent unit. Yeah, well, adolescents are adolescents are tricky. It's uh, not only are they less likely to be insured, they're also, you know, their road to recovery is often marked by relapse. So it's just, you know, there would be kids in my classroom, you know, many times over. They would go out, they'd relapse, they'd come back. And, you know, so these were long-term relationships with some of these kids. So yeah, it was really tough to know that there's, at least in Vermont anyway, no other place for them to go. Please, yeah. When you were teaching... Mm-hmm. You know, were you teaching sixth grade, I read, or what? So I've taught every grade from six to 12th. Um, I started out um, in a gifted and talented program at Duke University, and then I moved into a high school situation, taught high school for a long time, and then was offered a job in middle school and was like, forget it. There's no way I would ever teach middle school. (laughs) And they're like, well, just come meet them. And I went and I met them, and I fell so in love with them. I mean, I just loved it. And so middle school, I think, is really where my heart Aww. lies. I think if I was going to go back to teaching full-time, it would be middle school. Yeah. And then, um, you know, in the five years at the rehab, it was really the youngest was like 12 up to, you know, 18 right. when they would go up to the adult unit. So every grade from 12 to six to 12. Awesome. And then what, so your book, The Gift of Failure, mm-hmm. resonates with my work with, as a therapist and working mm-hmm. with teenagers today and just being a mom of young kids and, you know, it's really helpful being a therapist for teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I can sit there and go, okay, I don't want, you know, in the future for this to be the case with my kids. So I'm going to go home right. and implement some of this stuff at home, um, which is part of what I wrote my book about, but yours, your book goes in very deeply about just one little section of my book. So tell me a little bit more about what led you to that discovery and the need mm-hmm. to bring it to the public. So, I, you know, at that point when I was writing, when I first started writing about sort of the teaching stuff, my, it was funny. I had written a book that didn't get published as uh, most first books should yeah. never be, but they should never see the light <laughs> of day. And mine was one of them. I pu- managed to publish some of the chapters as essays, but then I started writing my, I said to my husband, I'm like, you know, I just don't know what to write about now. And he's like, well, teaching lights you up. So you should write about teaching because that's clearly where your heart is. And And of course I was like, well, who's going to want to read about that? So I started doing what a lot of teachers do actually, which is blogging about what they do in their classroom, which is great because then other teachers can look at what you're doing, find out what works, find out what doesn't. There are so many teachers blogging out there. That blog got some attention. And then I was invited to write for some other places. And then a study came out about the impact of overparenting on kids not just their mental health. It was a sort of a hint at the learning aspect, but mostly it had to do with sort of their ability to just to function um, as they got older. And the nice thing about that study was that it had, uh, it had quotes from some of the people and they were mostly like counselors and teachers. And it was a study out of um, Australia. And these were quotes that like, if I had asked the other teachers in the school, they would have said nearly the same thing. In fact, after I wrote this article and it was published in the Atlantic, 
the um, one of the counselors at the school came up to me and she's like, seriously, come on. These are quotes from our teachers and parents, right? Like these are, and you have to say that. And she was, they were mad. They're like, these aren't, but I'm like, no, seriously, here's the study. These are the quotes. This is what people are seeing. And that article went, went pretty viral. It was in the Atlantic. And then that led to the book, The Gift of Failure. So it really came out of seeing my students I mean, you know how kids work there, you know, you see them doing stuff wrong and you can't just call them out on it right away. You have to wait till there's this teaching moment where they're going to be receptive to that information. And more and more often those teaching moments were getting hijacked by the parent running in and rescuing or saving the day or delivering the homework or delivering the lunch or whatever it was. And it was really just a frustration point for me. At first, it was just about how pissed off I was at the parents of my students, and that's a terrible place to be as a teacher, obviously. And then I, and then I had one of those moments where I realized I was doing the same thing to my own children, and I had to sort of really come to terms. I had to get a little honest and realize. In the book, I tell the story that my kid couldn't, my nine-year-old couldn't tie his own shoes, and that was completely my fault because I had been doing it. I was continuing to do it. I was making excuses for why it was just easier if I did it, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So really it was my education interests, my interest in my students. And then, oh my gosh, I'm doing the same thing with my own kids. How do I fix this? And so my entire writing career really has been stuff that interests me. I go out and I read the research and consume all the research I can and then sort of translate it for the lay person. And it's, I, it's the best job in the whole world. You know, this recent book about substance abuse, same thing, you know, I'm an alcoholic. How do I prevent my kids from going down the same path I went down and just go consume all the research and then, you know, package it for other people. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have a new book coming out in the spring, correct? April. Yep. April. Okay. And what is it called again? It's called the addiction inoculation, raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence. And it's, really for, there's a chapter in there for educators because there's a whole chapter on what schools should be doing because most schools sort of wait until about middle school, have someone, you know, come in and talk about the dangers of drinking. It's too late by then, number one. And number two, that's just not the best way to do it. So I looked at like all the programs that um, have data behind them and what's effective and what's not. And then the, you know, really it's also for parents, it's for coaches, it's for counselors um, about if you look really practically at what does work for substance abuse prevention, here's how to best implement it from all these different angles. Right. And what we can't control. I mean, you know, I, my kids automatically are sort of 50%, you know, the genetics is sort of about 50% of it and not just genetics about like, there's no like addiction gene, but there is gene for personality and there's gene for various traits that sort of funnel in there. And then there's, Epigenetics. I mean, you know, what my epigenetics means like above the genes and it's about what uh, it's about intergenerational trauma. It's about what kids witness when they're small, you know, the traumas that they have, because a lot of people seem to believe that, you know, 50% of it is, is the genetic stuff. And then if you have trauma that flips that switch, that's, and, and pushes a kid, as you well know, in, they need something else to cope. They want to escape from it. They can't deal with it. So what do they do? They turn to substances. So um, that book was really hard to write. And that took me a couple of years. And, uh, and so I'm really excited that it's coming out in April. So how old are your kids? Now they are, one of them is in college and he will be 22 in December and one just turned 17 last week. Okay, nice. 
Yeah, a little. When I wrote Gift of Failure, there were nine and, you know, 14. So, yeah, yeah it's, they, yeah. they've, um, they've grown up in my articles and books. So. <laughs> uh, I bet. Yeah. Okay. So I want to hear more about the new book, but back mm -hmm. to the gift of failure. Of course. Do you find, you know, what are some examples that you have implemented being a mom and where did you draw that line? Because I think as a mom, that's where we struggle a lot. It's mm -hmm. Yeah so much gray area. Yeah. Parent, yeah. Right? It's right. so not black and white. So right. I know for me, I have a hard time finding that line of, okay, I'm, I want you to struggle. I want you mm -hmm. to feel the discomfort. So right. that there is something that comes from this that is productive and beneficial for you. But yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, is this going to be traumatic? Are you going to have a hard time getting through these anxious feelings? And mm -hmm. what can I do to be supportive, um, right. but not fix your problems? So, so can you share a little bit more into detail about that? Well, luckily I have the teaching background. So if nothing else, I can think about it as what would I do for my student? Because, you know, when you're in the classroom, if a kid struggles and they don't understand a question or something, you don't just answer the question for them, right? That would be terrible teaching. So from a very basic level, I try, you know, when it comes to homework in particular, if a kid needs help with homework, then my job is to be there and reflect back what they've said and sort of, you know, help them redirect that kind of thing. But when it comes to like, real danger stuff, you know, like driving and driving at night and going out with friends and, you know, yeah. doing a lot of things that's, that are really, really dangerous. You know, I, for me, I was very fortunate in that I had parents who um, trusted me and that was, you know, when people ask me about, you know, what kind of parents did I have? I, you know, I say they were protective, but at the same time, they were um, also just they, they had faith that I would make good decisions sure. and that faith that I would make good decisions led me in a way to make good decisions because I didn't want to let them down. And, you know, when I talk to kids, a lot of what I hear back from them is, you know, when my mother is so overprotective, when my father won't let me make my own decisions, what I hear from them is, I don't trust you. I don't think you're competent. I don't think you're capable. I don't think you can make good decisions. So there have been some times when, you know, it's been really, you know, it's been really scary. Um, but at the same time, and, and, you know, my line has to do when I get that fear trigger, like, and it still happens to me. I was joking just the other day about the fact that I think my youngest was like 10 mm -hmm. and there was this path that they could walk home from school on. And we lived in a, this was when we lived in New Hampshire, it was really, really rural. Um, and there was this path, but part of the path was really hard to negotiate. And the older kid had done it, but he got lost. I had to go rescue him. He, yeah. you know, I went driving around. It was, it had been like hours since he was supposed to be home. Oh and so the younger one did it. And for some reason with the younger one, I don't know what it is about younger ones. Um, I was just more more protective of my younger one, I think. I don't know. And um, as I'm as I'm headed out in the woods to try to meet him halfway, I figure, okay, I'll go for a walk and maybe we'll meet halfway. Yeah. All I could think was that he had been eaten by a bear. Sure. All yeah. I could think. And, yeah. and this is not illogical in the sense that we lived in a town where there is um, Ben Killam. We lived in this town where this guy, Ben Killam, had a bear orphanage and, and there were lots of bears. And like it was a regular thing to see bears in our town. A bear had not attacked a person for like 100 years or something like that. But it was completely like in my heart, I knew my child had been eaten yeah. by a bear. 
Right, sure. And so at a certain point when that fear kicks in, there is this responsibility we have to sort of think about the way we process fear. And I talk about this a lot with parents. Um, Lately, a lot of parents have told me that, you know, the reason they have to monitor all of their kids' social media and track them on their phones is that, you know, sex trafficking is a real problem. And so the blah, blah, blah. And I'm not here to say that sex trafficking is not a real problem, but I am going to say that um, when I ask those same kids, do your parents talk with you about prescription drugs in their medicine cabinet? Do your parents talk to you about wearing your seatbelt on a regular basis? Do your parents talk to you about ways to avoid getting in the car with the drunk driver? And yet, there and the kids often will say, No, my parents have never talked to me about that stuff. But at the same time, all I hear about is the fact that someone is going to steal me and sex traffic me. And as parents, we tend to cling to these heightened emotional things. And so, as a parent, I have to sit back and say, Okay, where are the real dangers here? And what is this just my cortisol getting going? Like, what is the worst thing that could happen? And is that thing really even realistic? What are the chances of that being a realistic thing? And, um, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes, but we really have to sit back and take a deep breath and realize that there's this great book by Michael Thompson called Homesick and Happy about kids going off to camp and being homesick, but also being happy because they have to rely on themselves. And he does this thing where he asks parents to uh, think of the thing they're most proud of that they achieved when they were younger, like something that they really were so proud of themselves for doing. And then he asks the parents that are in the audience to raise their hand if their parents were there when they achieved this thing that they were really proud of. And it's pretty rare that parents were there because it's usually something you have to achieve on your own. And so when I think back about the things I'm most proud of that I achieved, especially as a teenager, um, those were things I had to figure out on my own and rely on my own problem solving. So yeah, I have to do a lot of that, those mental gymnastics to remind myself how important those sometimes scary things are. Yeah, and I, I talk a lot about in my book, fear-based parenting and how Mm -hmm. we are so fearful and that's natural for us to be scared and it could be from our own upbringing or something traumatic we experienced or just, you know, the fear of our kid choking on something in the other room while you're taking a shower, you know, it's all very real. But what I talk to a lot of parents about is your reaction to that fear. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times we come across as angry at our child. Mm -hmm or a teenager, when really it's us reacting to our own fear. And when we come across as angry to them, they just feel shamed and like stupid. And what were you thinking kind of response. And then you have missed that opportunity to talk to them about the lesson that Mm -hmm. could be gained from that situation. And yeah. So- teachers, teachers have a joke that when we do parent teacher conferences, and by the way, we should all be doing student led par- uh, parent teacher conferences. Those are the best. But when we do parent teacher conferences, we always joke that, you know, there's not just two people in that room. There's at least six because there's like you, the parent, there's the, the, the parent's vision of the, what they believe that kid to be your vision of what you believe that kid to be the parent when they were the kid's age and had a bad experience with that math teacher that they're now so dedicated to making sure their kid, their kid does not repeat that. You know, there's all these different people in there and 
their reaction could have nothing to do with you and the reality of what's happening with the child in the classroom. It could be about the fact that they were bullied when they were in sixth grade. And remembering all of that is sort of part of the, the art of conducting successful parent-teacher conferences. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, I like that. I've never heard that before. And that's yeah. a really good way to look at it. And I could use that within my own therapy practice too. So sometimes you have to lead a parent out to, you know, they have all these fears that these things are going to happen and you say, yes, and well, what would happen if, and the yes, and thing can actually be counter, can it actually be productive because you're listening. Yeah. And really that's all that, you know, that's like as a therapist, as a teacher, as whatever you're doing and just allowing people to feel, feel heard can allay some of those fears. Yeah. So, okay. So bottom line, from what I heard you said about finding that boundary and that line mm-hmm. is to practice validation for the child mm-hmm. and to separate your maybe unrealistic fear from mm-hmm. reality. And or just emotional response about not wanting to see your kid be frustrated or scared or whatever. And remember that if you give them the opportunity to figure it out, they will be less scared about it less time next time. Okay. Like, yeah. um, little things like, you know, and, and this requires you to not only, you know, sort of just to be quiet and sort of take that deep breath, but sometimes you got, it takes time too. You know, we, we had an experience recently where um, we were going somewhere as a family. I can't remember where we were going, but I realized that the younger kid had never had to navigate an airport by himself before. And he's going to have to do that at some point soon, if he ever flies somewhere by himself and when he flies somewhere by himself, if we ever go back to flying. And um, so we got to the door of the airport and I was like, okay, where do we go? What do we do? And I said, I do have the boarding passes on my phone. So I'm happy to help you get them off the phone, but what do we do? Where do we need IDs? Where, what, booth do we go to? Where are we headed? And, you know, the kids just looked at me like, I'm sorry, what? Because <laughs> they're so used to being led by the hand. It is, mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they can be unthinking. They can turn that off. It's not like they're learning from watching us as we navigate the airport because they're just not paying attention. There's no reason to, right? right. So you got to put a little, you got, you do have to invest a little bit of time. Yeah, And you have to consciously do that with like little things like that. Like, mm-hmm going to the airport or yeah, had a situation at our house. Um, so I have four little ones, so they're nine mm-hmm. seven, and then the twins are five mm-hmm. and we don't have a house phone, but mm-hmm. I recently get like one of those gab wireless phones. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's basically, it looks like a smartphone, but it can only right. and call. I ordered one and I thought this will be great. This will be our house phone. And each of you can learn how to use it and you can call these are the numbers that are on mm-hmm. here. You can call grandma whenever you want. This is my number when I'm at work, you know, and I'm so thankful I did that because about a week later, I work Tuesdays and Thursday evening mm-hmm. and there's always a babysitter here. Well, their bus driver, they had like a substitute bus driver and she let them off the bus about 15 minutes early. And yeah. we live in a neighborhood with acreage. So when I say we're five houses down from the bus stop, it's, acres and acres. Yeah. 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 And so they walked home alone for the first time, all four of them. So meanwhile, I'm at work on a session, you know, with a client, I have no idea. And I get a phone call on my phone and it says the, you know, Stucky home phone. And I'm like, Oh, okay. It's Tuesday. That might be the kids. So I answer, you know, I interrupt my session and I answer it. And my oldest goes, mom, 
the bus driver dropped us off early. Don't worry. I got us in the house, but nobody is here. So you're going to need to go ahead and come home now. <laughs> but how cool of them to, oh to sort God. of figure, you know, get home and so yeah. Bad. And I know, I know that they were anxious and yeah. that some of them were crying and that they, they had never been home alone before, Yeah, you know, and But they were also looking to you to respond to that situation. And if you were proud of them and calm, then they were going to be super stoked about how they handled it. Getting flustered and getting upset that even happened. My response was, okay, buddy, I'm going to call the babysitter who lives like two doors down right now. And I'm so proud of you for calling me. That was the right thing to do. And he was really proud of himself. It took a couple days for all four of them to not bring it up with anxiety, but for the most part, it was one of the best things that ever happened. Right. And as parents, we have to sit in our own discomfort in order to allow our kids to learn and grow so that they're resilient, you know, and extrapolate that out. And a couple of years ago, when my kid was the older kid, he was probably 16 or 17 and he was working at a summer camp and he was going to be in charge of the archery range. I guess he must've been about 17. So he had to get certified um, to be an archery teacher. And as you can imagine, there's not a ton of classes for that. So it turns out that, so we, we waved goodbye. He drove off to somewhere in, I think he was supposed to drive off to somewhere in, in New Hampshire and get that certification. And I heard nothing. I assumed everything went great. And he, um, two weeks later, he said, I wanted, I didn't tell you about this because I wanted to tell you when I had handled it myself and it was all done, but he had gone a day late, like he just had the dates off by 24 hours. Okay. Yeah. But he has to have this certification or his summer job is gone. And so he went ahead and found out, he got all these phone numbers and found out where this person would be teaching next and followed her to Maine. um, And just sort of, you know, there are some aspects of that. I didn't know where he was, but he has a cell phone. So whatever, but he figured it out on his own. And what he came to me with was a a, a problem that had been solved and he was so proud of himself for how he handled it and how he solved it on his own. And, you know, part of me is like, that's fantastic. And m- my friend, uh, Julie Lithcott Hames, who wrote a book, how to, how to raise an adult. She and I talk about this a lot that, you know, our job is to put ourselves out of a job and it is the simultaneously the most horrifying and most satisfying thing in the world because we need to get them to a point where they don't need us. Um, Hopefully emotionally, they'll still come to us and they'll still talk to us, but they they don't need us to solve their problems for, solve their problems for them. And, you know, partially that's lovely, um, but I like solving problems sometimes. (laughs) I know I like to be the fixer. Yeah. Sometimes or their go. Yeah. Yeah. But see, then that's the wonderful thing. Like people will come to me and say, well, you said you wrote this whole article about how we should never deliver our kids homework to school. And I said, actually, that's not what I said. I said, if you have a kid who's consistently forgetting their homework, then not taking it forces a conversation with the teacher. It forces consequences. But if you have a kid who has been taking their homework to school every single day, and then there's this one odd day where they just forget get it. You can be that fixer because they're not relying on you on a constant basis to solve the problem and be their, their system for remembering. You are just being a loving parent, a loving family member who has someone's back, but not fixing the problem on a consistent basis. Between being a true enabler and being supportive. Right. 
Hey buddy, I know you had a late night last night and yep. you weren't thinking clearly this morning. Yep. We're getting your stuff ready to go. So let me help you yep. out yep. rather than, Oh gosh, let me do everything yeah. for you all the time so that you don't have to feel any of those uncomfortable feelings yeah. or even better th- go back to the beginning and say, you know, buddy, when I, um, get a, a sleep, have a sleepless night. And this is like, as you're leaving the house, I often I'm really forgetful. So let's do a final checklist. Do you have everything you need before you yeah. leave the house? Cause I need my, this, 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 and this, what do you need? So you can get ahead of the problem if you're thinking about the fact, if, you know, and it's hard cause mornings are hard, you know, yeah, you might be forgetful too, to even. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. So I want to jump to your new book that's coming sure. out. That sounds awesome. I'm so excited. I have a question. Do you feel, cause a lot of my work and research and book is about today's cultural impacts mm-hmm. on our kids. Um, do you feel, or did you find in your research that addiction is more prevalent and likely to happen because of their addiction to screens? Um, and anything the research yeah, the, the, the screen addiction thing. Well, first of all, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of, um, differing opinions. Number one, with the word addiction, you're supposed to be using the word substance use disorder or substance abuse, whatever. Um, There's also a lot of conflict about, okay, well, is screen addiction a true addiction? And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, since we're all talking about, you know, hits of dopamine and what satisfies, you know, what's sort of hitting those those pleasure centers in the brain, I think, you know, the mechanics are similar. So there isn't great research, though, on the crossover. What we do know about substance abuse, about kids who turn to substances, it's number one, you know, as we talked about with the genetics and the the possibility that based on either genetics having to do with, you know, how our brains react to certain substances or our personality types that for some kids, they try alcohol for the first time and they're like, oh my gosh, this is what I have been looking for. I profile a girl named Georgia in the book who um, had really serious uh, anxiety issues. And um, she, you know, her parents would take her to the doctor. The doctor would say nothing's wrong with her stomach because she would experience it as stomach aches. And so they're like, look, there's nothing really to do. There's nothing wrong with her stomach. And then she realizes in middle school, she had, you know, someone comes to talk to them about substance abuse and she hears the guy say that he could escape from his life by drinking. And she's like, well, that's what I need. And so for her, alcohol was the thing that allowed her to escape from her anxiety. And so, so keeping in mind that kids are more anxious than they have ever been, keeping in mind that. Uh, you know, we still have trauma that kids are dealing with um, so-called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, um, whether that's violence in the home, whether that's substance abuse in the home, there are all sorts of ACEs that are sort of, you know, they're kind of a hierarchy, but, you know, kids are still dealing with divorces. Kids are still dealing with all sorts of things that make them feel like they need an escape. And the problem comes when we don't give them, or we, meaning society, I don't mean we as parents, but we're part of it, certainly, don't give them the tools to talk about their emotions. You know, a lot of boys in particular aren't raised to talk about, you know, to label their emotions with actual words. So there's so much that feeds into it. The good news actually is um, substance use in kids is actually down, um, you know, alcohol, um, there, you know, th- there's been an uptick in some, some pot use because, you know, here and there because of, of, uh, of 
legalization. What's really funny though is that the, the uptick in pot use or in and in um, psychedelics is in adults at this point. I think a whole bunch of adults, you know, suddenly, you know, pot's legal in a bunch of places and, and a whole bunch of adults are like, cool, back to college or here, let's try all these things I didn't try as a kid. So in certain categories, it's we're actually seeing a bit of a dip, um, there a reduction in substance use among kids. But the reasons they have to resort, they feel they have to resort to substances, you know, remains pretty consistent. Anxiety, depression, feeling unloved, not knowing who you are, um, you know, not feeling like they have an identity. And so letting kids feel heard, helping them find their identity, helping them know who they are, helping them feel good about themselves, um, and early interventions for things like early aggression, um, early academic failure. I mean, academic failure is a setup for substance use um, for a lot of reasons because of a lot of the risk factors for substance use um, tend to compound as they go along. Like a kid could start out at having uh, anxiety issues or have having academic issues and then that sort of becomes an aggression issue because they're not knowing how to deal with it, which then leads to social problems, which by the way is another risk factor. So early intervention, early intervention, that's, it's all about early intervention for those kinds of issues. That's what I found to be so helpful. Like I said, with my job and working with my own kids at home was that early intervention with mm-hmm. all the issues that I wanted to talk with them about. I'm all mm-hmm. about the preventative care right. rather than that. Oh shoot. We should have right. addressed that 10 yeah. years ago. Right. You know? um, I don't and know. As those risk factors compound, it gets harder and harder to untangle what yeah. led to what. And you know, the thing is that's so nice right now, there are a lot of wonderful books about, you had asked about screens and screen yeah. addiction and stuff like that. There are all sorts of wonderful books, um, um, Devorah Heitner's ScreenWise. Um, there's a bunch of really wonderful books. And then there's also, we as adults who didn't grow up with screens need to change our perception a little bit. There's a, I would encourage parents to read a book called The New Childhood mm-hmm. uh, by Jordan Shapiro okay. because, and, and even um, Devorah Heitner's book, her book ScreenWise, it comes out of an organization that uh, she founded what's called uh, Raising Digital Natives is about the premise that, you know, kids are growing up with a very different understanding of yep. what it means to be social. So when we talk about, you know, texting with kids, that's often, especially now with COVID, that is their connection to their friends. And a parent talked to me yesterday about the fact that they were freaked out that their kid was um, spending so much time on screens with, quote, um, empty or false relationships. And I said, you know, be really careful there because to your kid, those are not false relationships. Those are real relationships. And so helping our kids understand the difference between, you know, true connection and communicating with people and, you know, FOMO and all those other sort of think traps that they fall into is really important. But the nice thing is, like I said, there are a lot of really wonderful books right at, out right now. And in fact, if you go to jessicalahey.com under um, the menu speaking, there's a big button that says download speaking bibliography. And my speaking bibliography has a whole category on like screen time and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I tend to, that's not my wheelhouse. So I tend to push yeah. people towards Devorah Heitner or Jordan Shapiro. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also, I need to send you my book because that's a lot of what Absolutely. Absolutely. About, you know, it's about parenting in today's culture and how none of us grew up with that and how right. 
I found six cultural influences that are affecting our kids that's leading to that heightened depression, mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, and suicidality. And it's right. just so scary. And what I love about talking with someone like you and other people is how it all really does kind of mesh together and it right. all goes together. And um, it's just beautiful to look at it from different perspectives. And I really, I get excited talking about this. Like my passion starts to just like set on <laughs> fire because, you know, a lot of times parents feel very alone with a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it, it's exciting for me to talk to more professionals who are like, no, I'm seeing that too. Mm -hmm. And I want to do something about it too. So listen yeah. up kind of thing, you know? Well, and, and I think it's really hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of our kids because tech was different when we were young. And um, in fact, there was this parent who um, got in touch with me because her daughter was feeling really alienated from her. She, it was as if she'd been ghosted by this yeah. group of yeah. friends yeah. and um, with no explanation. And it turns out that what had happened was is the other kids in that friend group knew that the girl's mom was reading all the texts and all those friends didn't want her mom. That's an invasion of their privacy. And right. so they dropped her from the text group, which was an unintended consequence the mother never could have thought of. Right. Um, and she, another parent got in touch with me just this week, actually, because her daughter has been spending so much time on social media that um, she just deleted, <laughs> I hate to say this, she's deleted all of the girls' accounts. And the problem there was because social media was the only way she ever got in touch with her friends, she didn't have her friends' phone numbers. She didn't have any, so she had to reconstruct her social circle, you know, and I'm not saying you can't take those things away. I'm just saying that there is some thinking to do about the fact that, you know, like reading a kid's email, you know, if you think about, so I'm, I'm 50. Mm -hmm. So when I was in 16 years old and in high school and a boy was going to call me or someone I had a crush on was going to call me. If my parents had picked up the guest room phone and listened quietly, I would have More freaked out. What an invasion of privacy. Horrible. Now that's for today's kids, that's reading their texts and emails, right? So never in a million years, have well I would never say never say never if my kids were having were in a crisis then there sure. is a chance that I would read my sure. kids emails or texts but barring a crisis I have never read my kids yeah, texts or emails so equivalent to reading diaries and reading yeah. journals and yeah. I understand the the desire to read your child's mm -hmm. journal I totally mm -hmm. understand that especially if you're fearful for their life right. um, but I also, it's such an invasion of privacy and it takes away from their comfort of having that coping mm -hmm. skill that is a very healthy coping skill. Right. Um, and they'll never do it again because right. they're fearful that you are going to do that. And it's the same thing with texting and leaning on friends or friends leaning on them via text. If you're reading that and they find out, yeah, that's going to be taken away. And so I talk a lot about, well, first of all, like you said, like the preventative care, like while they're little, if you don't want them mm. to be on social media then don't let them be on social media right. from the get go, but then also how to teach them how to be on social media and right. how to have connections through the phone there. Right. It's not going away. We have to mm -hmm. accept that this is 
today's world and how to teach them how to be on these devices so that it's not unhealthy for anyone, but rather productive and beneficial. Yeah. So, yeah Expressing yourself. I mean, especially since a lot of kids tell me they just don't feel like they have a safe place to express. Yeah. And I think about it in terms of my writing. You know, if someone were to come into my office right now and read the rough draft of yeah. the next book that I'm writing, they'd, they'd be like, what is wrong with her? She's horrible. So I have, the, there's this fear, Anne Lamott, the writer talks about this. Her greatest fear is that she'll get hit by a bus and someone will read a rough draft of something, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, having that outlet as a writer, I, I have written about all kinds of stuff that I would never publish because no, right. no, it would be horrible. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, we want kids to feel like they have an outlet. We want kids to feel like they can express themselves. And, you know, as a, as a writing teacher in particular, you know, that was often where, I was often the first one to find about self-harm, suicidal ideation, abuse. And so encouraging kids to express those things, it may not be to you. I mean, hopefully it would be to a parent, but it's not always going to be. So if we can, you know, help kids have places to put that out there. Um, that can often be, and the other thing I try to remember, so as a former law student, I try to remember, um, number one, so I have sort of a probable cause kind of thinking when it comes to snooping, like if I have a really good reason, there's, there's also, um, a writer that, oh my gosh, it just went out of my head. Lonnie Coombs. She wrote a book called, um, you're perfect. Another lies your parents told you or something like that. She's a, she's a prosecutor and she talks about the plain view doctrine. Like police can't search your car unless there's like drug paraphernalia in plain view. So, um, you know, there's that plain view doctrine. Like if something is visible, then sure, go for it. But then on the other hand, think about this, anything you see, you can never unsee. So let's see you snoop and you find out that your son is very likely gay yeah, and hasn't told you yet and is still working that out. Like maybe, you know, there's all these different spectrums of places that they could be. And you have now seen something that you have to carry around with you and feel bad because you're going to feel bad that, oh, why couldn't you feel like there's all these all these problems with seeing stuff. And guess what? Sometimes kids say in their texts and in their diaries that they hate their parents and that is perfectly normal and to be expected. But if you see it, oh, can you imagine? I know. That's what happened. I'm a big journaler and I guess, you know, that goes into why I'm a writer now. I just love to write. I always have since Mm -hmm. I was a little girl and my parents read my journal when I was in high school and I still, I still am resentful towards them about it because yeah. I, then I never felt comfortable writing freely again. I had mm-hmm. to think about what I wanted to write in my journal. The one place where I'm supposed to say all the thoughts and all the words and all the things, I'm allowed to say the F word in my journal, you know, right. I'm allowed to say how much I hate my dad right now. And that got taken away from me. And it's, I mean, now I can journal again with some confidence, but it took a long, long time. Yeah. And that is what happened. I said, I wrote some not so nice things about my dad and yeah. that got brought up. And I just, I was so hurt yeah. by that experience. And I'm sure he was too, obviously, but it's, it's, that's one thing that I have a hard time with parents when they come in and they're like, well, I, I need to see her phone every night. And yeah. I'm like, okay, we got to talk about this. What yeah. is what is your goal for reading her text messages every single night? Yeah. How can we yeah. do that so that we're 
focusing on the most important things. So I love that. What's your goal? Um, I was, I was listening to a conversation between a book coach and an author recently, and the book coach was talking about the goals that the author had. And every single time the author would give the goal, the book coach would say, well, why? Yeah. Is what what is your motivation behind that thing? And it really helps us understand, is this something, is this for me right. or is this really going to help my kid? And I, you know, I was talking to a high school kid. I don't remember where I was. And he said, you know, not only do I know my parents watch me all the time on my phone, the reason I know that is when I get home at the end of the night, sometimes they'll critique the way I drove, like the, 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 the you know, the way I took, yeah. um, the route I took. And one kid, he was standing there with his girlfriend. And he said, I half expect your mother to jump out behind the bushes when we're, you know, sitting somewhere just being together. So, you know, just, I can, you know, uh, speaking of things that I was really proud of when I was a teen, I mean, those moments of freedom where I actually had a car or I was on my bicycle and I, no one knew where I was and I was just exploring. Those are moments that kids really need to have. And if we're just on them watching where they are, it's called surveillance. And by the way, you know, for the parents listening, surveillance and and that kind of like keeping an eye on your kids that's a form of what's called extrinsic motivation it's a extrinsic control on kids behavior and when we do those things we actually undermine our kids motivation to do things for the sake of the thing itself and kids who are more tightly controlled by their parents lie to their parents more um, there's really clear research on that so if you want your kid to not lie to you if you want your kid to be honest with you then you have to back off on the controlling which is unfortunately the opposite of what tends to happen parents find out their kids are lying to them and then they they're watching more closer and closer and closer and when I talk to kids about this, I'll say, you know, why are you lying to your parents about, you know, being at the deli when you're actually at the coffee shop? It doesn't really seem to make a difference. And they're like, because I have to have something to myself, something of my own. And that, you know, that need to have autonomy and personal space is natural. It's called individuation. It's what teenagers have to do in order to break away from us. And if we don't give it to them voluntarily, they're going to take it um, away from us in ways that are deceptive. And I'd rather have my kid feel like he can be honest with me than that he has to sort of take it in that, you know, that sneaky way. Absolutely. I 100% agree. It's yeah. Being a parent, it's hard and it's harder now because we don't know with all the new stuff going on, what it's like to grow up with that, but we mm-hmm. can, we can try our damnedest to understand and to evolve as parents so mm-hmm. that they become resilient, strong, independent individuals. Very Absolutely. Important. Well, thank you so much for, you are so welcome. Thank you so much for what you do for kids, especially right now. It's really hard. All of my friends who are adolescent therapists and, yeah. you know, therapists for kids say, you know, it's hard enough to do your job face-to-face. It's even harder to do it by Zoom because kids are sick to death of Zoom. So I just have so much respect for people who are helping kids from through a screen. And so, you know, I'm not going to stop talking about it and sharing what, you know, I'm learning through my job as a mom. Mm -hmm. And and I'm thankful for authors and people like you who feel strongly to share that information as well. So thank you. Yeah, I think the more out of control we feel, the more things feel dire and, um, you know, the way to, and, and that's the same thing with kids. And so right now kids especially are feeling really out of control of their social lives of their ability to move around. And it turns out that, um, 
feeling out of control, one of the ways that we as human beings cope with that is by adapting and creating this thing called learned helplessness, where we go sort of boneless and we go kind of helpless, like, oh, someone need, and the way we as parents can sort of do an end run around learned helplessness in our kids is to hand back some control. Little things, right now it can maybe, it can be just let them have their their room the way they want to have it. Don't make them clean their room. Just let them have their own environment where that's under their control. Yep. And, you know, feeling out of control right now is really scary. And it's as scary as it is for us, as us, for adults, as adults, it's even scarier for our kids. Yeah, because they don't know what those emotions are and they have no idea yeah. how to regulate them. Yeah. So yep. um, we'll talk soon. Thank you so All much. All right. Thank you so much. And thanks again for what you do for kids. It's so important. Thank you. All right. All right. Have a good week. Bye. Bye.